Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 49th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Digital War Room, one of the leading providers for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is war and terrorism in cyberspace, wild, wild west shootout on the international frontiers. We're delighted to welcome David Bodenheimer, a government contracts partner and litigator heading Kroll and Mooring's Homeland Security Practice. David brings 32 years of experience in doing business with the government, recognized by Chambers USA as a leading lawyer within the cybersecurity space. He has represented Fortune 500 companies in cyber disputes with federal agencies, advised on security compliance and cloud standards, and handled a broad spectrum of cybersecurity and privacy issues in the public sector. For the American Bar Association, he serves on the ABA President's Cybersecurity Legal Task Force, heads the Science and Technology Law Section Security, Privacy and Information Law Division, and co-chairs the Public Contract Law Section Cybersecurity Committee. Well, that's a handful. Thanks for joining us today, David. <laughs> I'm delighted to join you and Sensei Enterprises for today's program. Thank you. Well, let, let's start out with, with what we hear every day, whether we read the newspapers or we're watching the morning news or we're looking online. All of these sources are filled with reports of data breaches like the Target breach, Home Depot, J.P. Morgan. How are cyber war and terrorism different, David? The data breaches we hear from Target and Home Depot are what we would classify as economic crimes, often instigated by organized crime, gangs, and hackers uh, seeking profit, uh, such as stealing personal data. In contrast, cyber war has a different uh, objective. Essentially, it's a military and political objective aimed at destroying critical infrastructure for a nation-state, crippling military or economic capability, or undermining government. So as painful as the Target and Home Depot breaches are, both for the companies and consumers, it pales in comparison to the potential devastation from cyber war and cyber terrorism. Well, David, I'm sure our listeners are really wondering how serious is the threat of, of cyber war or, or terrorism and, and what kinds of damage could, could be done uh, as part of these cyber attacks? Well, that's a great question. Uh, as President Obama stated uh, back in 2009, the cyber threat is one of the most serious national security challenges we face as a nation. Uh, since that time, the uh, Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, Secretary Panetta, described the risk of a digital Pearl Harbor that could uh, effectively take down our power grid or even our financial systems. And various congressional members have also warned of the magnitude of the threat. For example, Senator Lieberman said a catastrophic cyber attack is no longer a fantasy or a fiction. It's a clear and present danger. Uh, other senators, such as Senator Collins and Carper, have warned 
of similar catastrophic risks associated with such an attack. Two examples highlight the nature of the threat. One would be to the power grid itself. The Idaho National Laboratory did experiments a number of years ago and showed how even with uh, the types of tools you can get off of the internet or out of a, uh, uh, a commercial retail outfit, they could do serious damage to the control systems within the electrical uh, power grid. Uh, if those attacks happened and took down the power grid, we know it takes a long time to get a new generator. Uh, one of the congressional hearings said the damage could be up to $700 billion if it was an extended shutdown. Another example is to the financial system. As Admiral McConnell noted, two banks in New York move over $7 trillion per day in transactions. He said that if there had been an attack on the World Trade Center that was a cyber attack instead of the planes flown into the Trade Center, the economic effect, and we're only talking about the economic effect, would have been 10 times worse than the 9-11 attack. So those examples illustrate the magnitude of the risk associated with cyber war and terrorism. Now, I know a lot of people have suggested that cyber war and terrorism are more science fiction than reality. Clearly, John and I don't agree with that. You don't agree with it. Um, has it happened yet? Well, there's a historical precedent. You know, for example, we know both in Estonia and in 2007 and in Georgia in 2008 as uh, you know, a prelude to the Russian tanks rolling into the country's cyber attacks crippled the government websites in both of those countries. Uh, as another example, during one of the congressional hearings, a code had been secretly trojanized to be installed into a pipeline control system. Uh, and then when triggered, that Trojan code uh, caused the pipeline's pressure to uh, spin up well above its capacity, resulting in a three kiloton explosion. And that's about one-fifth the size of the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, President Obama, in his 2009 remarks, described... Uh, other countries in which cyber attacks have plunged entire cities into darkness. And, of course, uh, there's Stuxnet. Hmm. You want to tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, every, not everybody knows what we know what it is, but not, not all of our audience will. Of course. Uh, Stuxnet was a worm that was created uh, to infiltrate and destroy certain control systems that were... Uh, unique to power generation, and in particular, the Stuxnet worm penetrated the control systems for the Iranian Bashir nuclear plants, causing those uh, control systems to spin up and ultimately destroyed uh, a large number of the centrifuges within the uh, Iranian uh, power plant. One of the things that made it remarkable, now, while it's been a few years ago and it's likely that the technology has advanced, 
at the time, Stuxnet was the most sophisticated cyber weapon ever uh, discovered. Yeah. When it was analyzed, uh, a number of people estimated that it took over 10,000 programming hours to create a cyber weapon of that complexity. Also, it involved four zero-day vulnerabilities, which by definition are vulnerabilities in software that nobody else has ever found. Now, obviously, those are vulnerabilities that are hard to find. And on the black market at the time, some people estimated that each one of those zero-day vulnerabilities would have been valued at over $150,000 due to their rarity. Uh, having four of those zero-day vulnerabilities was simply unprecedented. And in addition, there were stolen digital certificates. Uh, and finally, uh, some people estimated that it would have taken at least three years and tens of millions of dollars to develop Stuxnet. Uh, in the interim, you know, we have to anticipate that there must be a number of even more sophisticated cyber weapons in the arsenals around the world. Hmm. Well, that's that's interesting since uh, uh, Sharon and I were just talking uh, a couple weeks ago that uh, our, our friend uh, Kevin Mitnick, the, the known hacker I'm sure that you're aware of, was uh, starting to offer zero-day vulnerabilities for $100,000. So if it was 150 for Stuxnet ones, uh, that sounds like a bargain. Uh, for what it could do, for but, sure. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that you know Mitnick is doing the right thing there. But getting back to the the cyber weapons, though, David, um, do you really believe that they're likely to proliferate? That seems uh, almost uh, beyond debate at this point. Uh, what we know uh, from congressional hearings is that many of the nation states, like Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran already have offensive cyber attack capabilities. A number of the terrorist organizations like Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda are also working towards the development of cyber weapons as well. Uh, one of the Canadian security officers suggested that we're currently in a global cyber arms race already. And Dr. Jim Lewis uh, summed it up nicely when he said, uh, cyber attack will be like the airplane. Within a few years, no self-respecting military will be without this capability. You know, we already have indications of millions and even billions of dollars being spent on offensive cyber operations, so we're likely to see a uh, proliferation of uh, several times the uh, current state of affairs. Well, that's a little frightening. <laughs> a little, a little <laughs> um, more than a, more than a little, more than a little. David, I know, you know, we have treaties governing chemical and biological weapons, nuclear arms, and space war. I know we get asked all the time what law governs cyber weapons and war, and and we always just shake our head with with a gloomy look. Uh, what would your answer be? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm shaking my head with a gloomy look as well. Uh, <laughs> There's a number of analogies that are used. There's nothing specific to cyber war, but in trying to identify the applicable international law, uh, some have looked to the Hague Conventions, you know, the laws of war and war crimes, which uh, date back to 1899 and 1907 uh, when we had wooden ships uh, and a few steel ones. 
well before the age of cyber war. Uh, Geneva Convention is another one uh, to which some experts look regarding humane treatment uh, of prisoners and civilians during war, and that's 1949. And then, of course, the UN Charter, which is a little more recent, but not a lot, discussing the right to self-defense. These provide some helpful analytical frameworks, but at the end of the day, they don't answer the question of what is the law that nation states should be observing, and much less uh, what should terrorists be following. So right now, we're truly on the uh, frontier of international law and trying to determine what governs cyber war uh, in the international arena. Never mind who's going to enforce it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We don't know the answer to that question. Uh, Perhaps we'll find out. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, the Digital War Room Platform Free Discovery. Don't be caught unprepared for e-discovery. Digital War Room e-discovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time e-discovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy e-discovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is war and terrorism in cyberspace, wild, wild west shootout on the international frontiers. Our guest is David Bodenheimer, a partner and litigator who heads up Kroll and Mooring's Homeland Security practice. David, within the United States, what laws may federal agencies and contractors face in waging or in defending against cyber war? I'm sure everybody's asking that question. Well, Sharon, one of the uh, challenges is what is the applicable law Uh, within the United States? uh, If you're talking about uh, military operations, they're generally governed under Title 10 of the United States Code, uh, the uh, statutory authority for the Department of Defense, whereas intelligence uh, agency uh, laws are generally collected under Title 50 of the United States Code. So a contractor, in trying to determine whether they are governed by uh, military law within the U.S. or intelligence law, is going to have a challenge. And in some circumstances, it could well be both. For example, uh, when another country attacks the U.S. with a cyber attack, Uh, If the military or the intelligence agencies are looking to take uh, action against the attacker, one of the first things you need to do is to authenticate and identify the adversary. That would entail both the effort to authenticate the attacker and then to the extent an offensive operation is launched, what uh, governs the uh, military operation. In addition, uh, anytime that you're using you know, the internet or the phone lines or 
other electronic uh, connections of that type, you know, you have to worry about electronic surveillance laws as well as wiretapping laws. And in addition, the uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And then finally, you know, the Department of Defense is limited under posse comitatus to uh, fighting outside of our borders. So when an attack happens within the borders, it raises questions about whether you're operating under law enforcement authority or military authority. And one example of the challenge you know, would be the uh, lawsuits that we may recall when some of the telecommunications companies were cooperating with the NSA. Back at the time, for example, Verizon was sued in a class action for $50 billion in damages, uh, you know, alleging uh, violations of privacy. Ultimately, the telecommunications companies were protected by statutory immunity when Congress uh, you know, changed the law to protect them and allow them to cooperate with NSA. But you know, as a private company working with the government on offensive operations, you're not uh, going to be a telecommunications company uh, under most circumstances, and you have to worry are you going to be vulnerable to these types of private lawsuits? Well, let, let me ask you, because this is a, yet another spin on this, and it's terribly complicated, I know, but if the public sector uh, assists federal agencies in defending against cyber military or terrorist attacks and the contractor's technology fails, then what are the risks to the contractor? Well, that's a good question, too. Uh, you know, in the defensive operations, many of our... Uh, best and brightest are going to be in the private sector. They will be assisting with cybersecurity for federal operations and uh, the critical infrastructure for the federal government. In these circumstances, you know, the question becomes, you know, how you know, does the contractor protect itself from liability? There's several potential ways that a contractor may look for protection. You know, one would be the government contractor defense. And that was raised, for example, in the Agent Orange litigation in which uh, a number of the uh, veterans that were exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam then turned around and, and sued the federal government, which had sovereign immunity uh, for most part and then sued the contractors that you know, simply made Agent Orange to the government specifications. Many of those companies ended up paying out huge sums of money even when they made the product to government specifications at government direction. For cyber weapons or cyber defenses, that's going to be a bit dicier. Uh, in those circumstances, many of the cyber defensive tools are going to be ones which have been built in the private sector you know, to commercial requirements. And for those, the government contractor defense doesn't fit very well. Another option would be the Safety Act, which provides uh, limited liability to contractors that are developing anti-terrorism technology. On one hand, that's a very useful tool uh, because many of the companies have been able to get fairly broad coverage, including for some cybersecurity products. Uh, 
on the other hand, that act is really aimed at anti-terrorism technology. And the bigger risk for contractors is that coverage and protection only happens when the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security determines that, in fact, a terrorist act has happened. So for an attack by Russia or Iran or China, there's no assurance that those will be categorized as a terrorist act and therefore uh, triggering coverage under the Safety Act. A third possibility is a very old one. It's even older than me, which is the public <laughs> law. <laughs> You're a youngster, David. Cut that it, it is very old. Uh, the public law 85804 provided for indemnification for ultra-hazardous activities and has been a very helpful uh, type of protection for contractors in such areas as uh, nuclear submarines and carriers or building missiles or uh, you know, rockets to launch satellites into space. But nonetheless, it's discretionary and it hasn't been widely used. So while it could be available, it's not something that contractors can count on. And one of the last areas would be uh, legislative proposals. You know, this has been considered you know, in some congressional committees, but there's been concern about do we actually, you know, within Congress, want to relieve contractors of liability and leave injured parties uh, unprotected? Politically, it's not clear you know, whether that will happen. Without these types of protections, the uh, contractor community could be subject to a variety of potential risks, uh, ranging from government claims, uh, you sold me a product that you know, was represented to work under certain conditions but failed. In addition, there could be third-party lawsuits, uh, particularly if uh, the damage went through government networks into you know, third-party networks. And then finally, there's already been litigation with insurance companies over the scope of coverage for cyber events, and we could expect that would be yet another question mark where contractors may be looking for protection but not have it. Hmm. Well, well, David, you've, we've talked a little bit about the private sector's role as it pertains to offensive operations or defensive operations, but... What, what happens if a company is just simply a third-party bystander and they, and they get damaged by you know, one of these U.S. federal actions that relate to an attack or a defense? You know, sort of the, the, the theory that they're, they're unfortunate enough to be in a blast zone, as an example, a cyber blast zone. What, what happens then? <laughs> and, John, that's an even tougher question. Uh, in that circumstance, it can arise in a variety of ways. Uh, for example, one client discussed... Uh, a series of attacks on their network by one of the local community colleges. Well, obviously, it was not the community college or its students making the attack. It was a botnet attack in which some uh, third party, uh, possibly a foreign government, had taken over uh, computers and used those computers as their robots to make further attacks on other networks. Uh, in those circumstances, a company could also be at risk if it didn't have uh, robust cybersecurity and having its network taken over and turned into a botnet 
uh, attacker. In those circumstances, uh, the company could end up uh, having its network taken down by the government uh, to uh, stop you know, such attacks. Or alternatively, uh, in theory, the government could take over private networks, perhaps uh, computers in other countries, in order to launch an attack. Another scenario that could arise would be denied network access, such as where a company is being attacked and it perhaps is interconnected with a government network or other critical infrastructure and could have its system simply taken down by the government. And then you can have a scenario where a cyber weapon is created and while it is specifically targeted, say, to an Iranian uh, control system, uh, unfortunately, it also uh, has the ability to attack, uh, say, a control for a satellite launch, and you could create uh, additional liability that way. Uh, in any of those scenarios, the uh, company that has had its network torn down uh, as a result of you know, the government shutting it down or taking over its network for botnet uh, type uh, activities would be looking for some type of remedy. And one example would be eminent domain. You know, when the government uh, destroys property or takes over property, it can be uh, potentially liable uh, under the Fifth Amendment for a uh, eminent domain action. You know, one example, uh, not involving cyber, but uh, involving essentially a third-party company. In Monsanto, uh, the EPA accidentally released the crown jewels of the company for one of its chemical products. And the Supreme Court said that Monsanto had a Fifth Amendment right to bring an action. Uh, it didn't have a contract, so what was this alternative? It would be uh, an eminent domain action against the government for damage done. Another example would be a Contract Disputes Act. If, in fact, the company that had its network taken off the grid uh, or disconnected from a uh, military system uh, may uh, have a right uh, for a contract dispute, one of the challenges is how fast do you get a remedy? Uh, sometimes it takes years. And for many companies, uh, being off the network for a month or 10 months can effectively be an economic death sentence. And then finally, you know, there is the Federal Tort Claims Act. You know, if there is a tort, then uh, a company may be able to argue that somehow the government was negligent in uh, doing damage to its system. Uh, however, you know, there's always a question about uh, the scope of that remedy, you know, the government has a right to take sovereign acts, and uh, in those circumstances, uh, a company may have its network damaged and end up being unable to obtain an effective remedy. Uh, so those are some of the challenges, uh, you know, the third-party actions, the innocent bystander remedies are possibly the least developed areas, and I predict that this will be the area where we'll see 
further development on the wild, wild west of the cyber frontier. I was going to make some kind of wild, wild west references as we close and thank you. But I really think that since we're recording this just before Halloween, I need to make a Halloween reference and say that you are one heck of a cyber boogeyman. Because <laughs> you, you have scared us half to death here, David. <laughs> Well, uh, that's uh, one of the reasons that I continually reduce my connections to the Internet. (laughs) Uh, It is a scary world out there, and uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, It is an area where the private sector and uh, government agencies need to think hard about uh, how they they allocate the risks. And there will be a lot of uh, law and a lot of actions ahead of us as we figure out the the law of cyber war and terrorism. I'm sure there will be. And and thank you for sharing your very considerable expertise with us today. We're very grateful to have had you on the show. Well, thank you so much, and I wish you the very best. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.